A little girl once asked her mom, is God as big as the universe? Of course, the mother replied, yes, he is. And mommy, is Jesus God? Yes, sweetheart, he sure is. And mommy, does Jesus live in our hearts? Oh, yes, he certainly does. Well, you can see the tumblers turning in this little girl's head. Finally, the daughter, she drew her conclusion. She said, if Jesus is as big as the universe, and if he lives in my tiny heart, that means you'll see him shining through. And the world's most brilliant theologian couldn't have said it any better than this little girl. When we repent of our sin and when we trust in Jesus, he not only comes to live in us, but he also shines through us. For each of this spring's three wonderful Sundays, we've looked at this metaphor here in Psalm 1. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, compare the blessed man, the happy man, the happiest man, to a tree planted by the river. And I thought this morning we could all stand together and we could read in unison, out loud, in unison, these first three verses here in Psalm 1. So that means you first have to stand. And you have to have your Bible ready. And the trick here is for us all to start together. Because if we don't start, we only got three verses. If we don't start together, we'll never catch up. So here's how we'll do it. I'll do the countdown. Three, two, one. Whoa, 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 wait, man, wait, wait. I was just telling you what I was going to do. Everybody ready? Okay. Three, two, one. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. And you can be seated. When you look closely at this psalm and this metaphor that we're given, you'll see three concerns. A person's roots, their shoots, and their fruits. As for roots, we talked about this in our first lesson, God wants us positioned properly. A couple of weeks ago when I spoke about sinking roots, Kathy reminded me of the classic illustration. My wife has a green thumb. She loves to plant living things, trees, plants, shrubs, and she hates for me to trim them, by the way. She would create a jungle around our house if I let her. In our old house, she planted a tree right in the center of our front yard. If I remember correctly, she planted it while I was out of town. Not that I would have objected, but she just didn't want to run that risk. She wanted a tree in the middle of our yard. And it was a beautiful tree. I took the picture this morning. It was a beautiful tree. Always healthy. Drought resistant. 
a strong and sturdy tree. But there was a reason for this tree's resilience. Kath planted it right over the septic line. (laughs) He was getting fertilizer. But when the sewer backed up and the toilet overflowed, it was discovered that her tree had sunk its roots right into our sewage stream. And this is what happens if a Christian sinks their roots in the wrong place. Sewage might fertilize a tree, but spiritual sewage, moral filth, will rot away a Christian's joy and faith and power. When you sink your roots into unholiness, you grieve the Holy Spirit. I've known many a believer who was gloriously born again, filled with spiritual life, but they mistakenly positioned their life in the wrong places. They sunk roots and connected to wrong friends and influences. Hey, there is a spiritual law that no one escapes. Galatians 6, verse 7 and 8 says it crystal clear. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For if he sows to his flesh, of the flesh he'll reap corruption. But if he sows to the Spirit, he will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. In other words, it's either garbage in, garbage out. Or it's grace in and grace out. But you reap what you sow. The psalmist tells us that the blessed man walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. He's careful who he looks to, who he lingers with, who he laughs at. As I mentioned earlier, Lives are not shaped by mysterious forces, but lives are shaped by deliberate choices. When you sink your roots, when you strategically sink your roots for your life and for your family, where you sink those roots really does matter. For out of our roots come our shoots. God wants us also progressing continually, always growing in grace and in faith. Did you know faith is a muscle? Faith gets stronger or it withers by the choices we make. Feed your faith properly. Exercise your faith regularly and it'll grow. Take it for granted and it'll shrivel. Hey, as we pointed out last time, the time to worry about our spiritual strength isn't in the heat of the battle. It's beforehand. You see, the fight is won by the person who trained their faith through obedience and who fed their faith on the Word of God. The winner is the one who has prepared for the battle. And thus we learn spiritual growth, sprouting new shoots, is intentional It's behavioral, it's devotional, and it's habitual. Well, healthy followers of Jesus, they're like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Their roots are positioned properly. Their shoots are progressing continually, and they have fruits. 
This morning we find that someone teaches that a blessed man is productive annually. The light of Jesus not only shines on him or her, but it shines through their life to the people around them. Notice again, verse 3, the blessed man is like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. A healthy believer brings forth fruit. I want you to recognize three important truths about spiritual fruit we glean from our passage. First, it's our purpose to bear fruit. Second, it requires perseverance. And then third, this fruit bearing, it's very, very practical. Fruit is self-evident. First, fruit bearing is our purpose in this world. Let me qualify that statement first. Bearing fruit is not our purpose as a Christian. Ultimately, our goal is to know God. This is why he redeemed you and saved you and, and washed you clean. It's so that you could know him. I agree with the Westminster Catechism. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. God created us for fellowship, not the fruit that we might bear or the usefulness we might serve. He desires us for who we are, not just for what we can do. And yet fruitfulness is one of the primary reasons he leaves us in this world. God knows our relationship with him will impact us in advantageous and in appealing ways. And the byproduct of his influence in our lives will attract others to him. Thus, he plants us so that we'll grow and bear fruit. How many of you have ever received a fruitcake at Christmas time? Right, yeah, show of hands, it'd be good. How many of you ever received a fruitcake at Christmas time? Okay. How many of you like fruitcake? Oh, that's more than I thought. I always receive fruitcake, but I can't stand them. The answers are usually everybody and almost nobody. I ran across this interesting list. Here are the top ten suggestions for how to recycle leftover fruitcakes. Number 10, pothole filler. Number 9, shot put. Number 8, speed bump. (laughs) Number 7, boat anchor. (laughs) Strap your fruitcake and throw it over the bow. Number 6, flower press. Number five, bed warmer, heat to 350 degrees. Number four, ice pack, freeze for 12 hours. Number three, chopping block, watch out for breaking knives. Number two, scratching post for your cat. And number one, this is my favorite, wheel chalk for a tractor trailer. That's how you recycle a fruitcake. You see, a fruitcake is intended to be eaten, but sometimes you can find alternate uses. Christians, though, it's a different story. God expects us to fulfill one purpose. There's one purpose for us being left on this earth. And according to verse 3, 
It's to bear fruit. God's intent is for you and I to glorify Him and impact others for His cause. In contrast, the psalmist says that the ungodly, in other words, the person without God, he has no purpose at all. Verse 6 puts it, he's like the chaff which the wind drives away. In other words, the person without God in his life is aimless. He drifts, or, or better said, he's blown here and there. His life has no steering mechanism. He's like a boat with a broken rudder. Reminds me of the business executive whose goal was to climb the corporate ladder. He climbed and he climbed and he climbed. His eyes were always on the next rung on that ladder. I mean, isn't that what business people are expected to do? Climb the ladder? Finally, though, after reaching the pinnacle of his profession, he admitted, I've spent my entire life climbing a ladder that was leaning against the wrong wall. You see, a piece of chaff, a dry leaf on a windy day, it swirls in the breeze. It might be driven. There is movement. It might appear as if there's progress, but it's not really moving in any meaningful direction. It's drifting with no purpose. During World War II, prisoners at a Nazi concentration camp, they converted waste products into synthetic alcohol. The alcohol was used as a fuel additive. Well, one day, the Allies, they bombed the camp and they destroyed the operation. The Nazis decided to take out their frustrations on the inmates. They forced them to pile all of the rubble from the air raid at one end of the field. When they had finished, they were ordered to carry the debris to the other end of the field. This went on back and forth, back and forth for weeks until many of the captives began to crack up under the strain. Some of the prisoners, they tried to escape and were shot. Other men electrocuted themselves by jumping into the high-voltage fence that surrounded the camp. A few of the camp's inmates went insane, and here's why. Because their work made no sense, their lives had no meaning. Now, I hope you hear that statement. There's a principle here. I'm going to repeat it. Since their work made no sense, their lives had no meaning. Now, I'm sure there are occasions when your job makes you feel good, that it's rewarding to some degree. But I'll bet there are many more moments of despair where you think, what ultimate good am I doing here? Oh, I'm making money, but for who and for what and for why? Oh, I'm raising kids that one day won't even be thankful. I mean, is my gargantuan sacrifice really worth the trouble? Is there any eternal value in what I'm accomplishing? It's been said most people are like the crew members who were busy arranging chairs on the deck of the Titanic. I mean, so what if I make a splash on earth when this world is a sinking ship? If what I accomplish is forgotten in a few months or a few years, what good have I done? I love this line. Only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. It's true. I'm sure you've heard someone say, take a glass of water, 
and stick your finger in it. Now pull it out quickly. The time it takes for the water to refill the hole is the time it'll take for you to be replaced once you're gone. In one sense, there's a lot of truth in that picture. But in another sense, my goal is to defy that illustration. My desire is to leave behind a big footprint. I want my life to create a permanent dent in this world. My goal is to make a splash that produces eternal ripples. Imagine one day strolling along the streets of heaven and bumping into a fellow who grabs your hand. He starts shaking it profusely. After clearing the knot in his throat, he tells you that he was the child who learned of Jesus in the Sunday school class that you taught. You played a role in his getting to heaven. Can you imagine a greater thrill? Can you imagine accomplishing a greater purpose? Several years ago, I was challenged by the thought, Sandy, do you want to be known as a great pastor or the pastor of a great church? And after a lot of soul searching, I concluded I would rather be known as the pastor of a great church. I want to be a part of a church that long outlives me. A church that will still be winning people to Jesus when I'm a footnote in the history books, when I'm a distant memory. You know, at times you assume that the role that you're playing in your church's ministry is minor. It doesn't really matter if you step up or not. I beg to differ. Don't think, oh, I can easily be replaced. Think again. It takes a lot of cogs to keep the wheels rolling. What this church does from week to week is vitally important. From the folks who lead worship, to those who teach Sunday school, to those that man the media and staff the brook and usher and make CDs and count the offering and give the offering and just show up. We are all together creating a place in our community where people can go to hear God's word and experience his grace. This is important work. Your attendance here from week to week is strategic. And that's not to mention the other outreach that goes on. You know, most Christians take their church for granted since it's always there. But please don't. You have a part to play. Our purpose at Calvary Chapel is to show our community, in fact, our world, that God is alive and well, that the Bible is truth for today, that it's cool to be a Christian, that grace is the better way, and that Jesus is the person who can heal all of your hurts. God wants you and I to be like a tree. And a tree's purpose, a church's purpose, a Christian's purpose is not just to take up space or look pretty or grow big. It's to show love and speak truth. In essence, it's to bear fruit. Well, fruit producing is our purpose. But it also requires perseverance. For notice what the psalmist says about this tree planted by the river. It brings forth its fruit in its season. Notice, bearing fruit is a seasonal occurrence. This requires patience and perseverance. How often have we seen newbies get involved in Christian ministry expecting to see instant success only to be disappointed? Such people don't last long. 
Hey, we need to think back to how we became a Christian, what it took to bring us to Christ. Oh yes, there was a point in time when we prayed a prayer or we walked an aisle and we made that decision to follow the Lord. But for most of us, that conversion, it came as the end result of a process. Circumstances awakened our need. A Christian friend, perhaps, took an interest. (laughs) After resisting him for weeks, we finally broke down and went to church. It took several weeks of listening to the Bible study for us to finally decide that we needed to follow Christ. But you see, it didn't happen overnight. It was the culmination of events. And we need to remember this when we interact with other people. Don't get disappointed when you pray for your friend and nothing immediately happens. Or you invite them to church and they refuse. Trust me, they're listening to you. They're watching you. They want to see if you really believe what you say. They want to see the difference that Jesus makes in your life before they take the step of asking him into theirs. Throughout the Bible, Christian ministry is compared to farming. The two disciplines, they have much in common. In farming and in church work, there's a time for sowing. It's hard work to plant a field and to or to till up a field and to plant a seed. But then there's that time for reaping, and this is the exciting time. The harvest is the rewarding time. You get to see the results of your labor. But the bulk of the time occurs in between the sowing and the reaping. That's when you do a lot of waiting. Patience and perseverance is what's required. Hey, wouldn't it be great if the day after we sowed, we reap the harvest? We'd all want to sow seed. But the farmer knows it doesn't work that way. It takes time and requires perseverance. Take, for example, the Chinese bamboo. Plant a bamboo sprig, and for four or five years, nothing really happens. You water it, you fertilize it, you weed it, You see no noticeable growth for four long years. But in that fifth year, an explosion of growth takes place. In a period of six weeks, that bamboo sprig grows into a tree 90 foot tall. In 60 days, it grows 90 feet. During this period of growth, a bamboo tree can grow three feet in just 24 hours. It's incredible that a tree could lie dormant for years and then suddenly explode with dramatic growth. And yet Christians and churches can sometimes do the same. You plant that seed and you wait and you wait and you water that seed and you want to shake that person and say, what's wrong with you? Well, hey, give them time. One day you might just see a bountiful harvest. Some of you don't know this, but my wife, Kathy, she's a very, very fine tennis player. She's gotten trophies now to prove it. Here here she is. She recently won the Alta City Championship. How about that? Give her a round of applause. Oh, my. I live with a tennis star. Kathy played tennis in high school, but she laid down her racket for several years, some business about 
raising kids and stuff. But I recall when she got back into it, I went out with her a couple of times to kind of get her back in shape, kind of train her and all. And I noticed immediately that she had great form. I could tell she had played before. She had great form. In fact, I spent a lot of time checking out her form. But here was her problem. She had great form, but she lacked stamina. And this can happen in Christian ministry. A person can have great form, but lack stamina and endurance and perseverance. Actually, tennis and ministry have a lot in common. They say in tennis, an effective serve requires a good follow-through. And the same is true in Christian ministry. A cheetah's sleek body and strong muscles make it the fastest animal on the planet. At full stride, a cheetah can reach speeds upwards of 70 miles per hour. But the animal's heart is extremely small in proportion to its body, so it lacks the stamina to sustain its speed for very long. Thus, if the cheetah doesn't catch its prey in its initial burst, it tuckers out. It goes hungry. The attended victim escapes because the cheetah doesn't have the heart for the chase. Thus, it fizzles out. And the same is true of some Christians. This is the problem with some Christians. They want to serve the Lord. They want to take a role in their church. They want to count for God's kingdom. But they don't have the heart for this race. They drop out before they get started. Did you hear about the suicide bomber? He went on 50 missions. (laughs) Well, apparently he was involved, but he wasn't very committed. He lacked follow-through. If you're going to count for Jesus, you need perseverance. Hey, bearing fruit is our purpose. It requires perseverance. And then lastly, bearing fruit is very, very practical. Notice the last line of verse 3. And whatever he does shall prosper. Apparently, he does stuff. Rather than just talk a good talk, the blessed man, he acts and he does. Both his words and his deeds are a witness for Jesus. And I hope you know, there are all kinds of creative ways that you can tell someone that Jesus loves them. And you can show his truth to others. All kinds of ways. John Patrick, he once wrote a comedy entitled, The Curious Savage. And in his play, a curious Mrs. Savage, she notices that her friend Fairy May seems bothered. She asks Fairy what's wrong. At first, Fairy answers curtly. She says, nothing. But then Mrs. Savage, she presses her for a reply. She says, it's just that no one said that they love me this lifelong day. Mrs. Savage, she responds, oh, yes, they have, Fairy. She insists, no, they haven't. I've been waiting. Mrs. Savage points out, I heard Florence say that she loved you at dinner tonight. Fairy answers, did she? In fact, Florence chimes in, did I? Mrs. Savage explains, sure you did. You told Fairy not to eat too fast. Well, Fairy wasn't sure that she understood. She said, 
Why was that saying that she loved me? Mrs. Savage continued, of course it was. People tell you that they love you when they say, take an umbrella, it's raining. Or hurry back. Or even watch out, you'll break your neck. There are hundreds of ways to word it. You just have to listen for it. I like that thought. There are literally thousands of ways to communicate the love of Jesus to this unlovable world. Anytime we show we care, we're showing God's love. And we need to show his love, not just at church. Annie Dillard writes this, It's madness to wear ladies' hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For God may draw us out to where we can never return. She's saying that God wants you and I to move beyond, to move out beyond the four walls of the church building and to impact our community for the cause of Christ. Where we work, at the ballpark, in our school, in the neighborhood, look for ways to show the love of God. Look for ways to proclaim His truth. Recently, the London Zoo opened a new exhibition, a new exhibit. School children can now observe what the zoo calls the world's most destructive animal. It's called the human. Paul Hutton spends his weekends on constant display at the London Zoo. Imagine, though, what it's like for Paul to be caged up and watched all day long. It's got to be kind of a creepy feeling, wouldn't it be? Yet this is how we as Christians have been called to live our lives. People are looking at us. Man, once you let the word out in your workplace that you're a Christian, people will be watching. We'll be under scrutiny. Call yourself a Christian in your own exhibit. And rather than resent this kind of scrutiny, rather than run from it or try to avoid it, we need to embrace it. In fact, we need to take advantage of it. Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. How can we see, be seen if we're not out there living our lives openly? Hey, you and I, we need to be exhibit A that Jesus is alive and well, that he's at work in the hearts and in the lives of those who trust him. Hey, God sees the orchard called the church, and he inspects it for fruit. The Lord desires acts of love and works of kindness and demonstrations of our devotion. He wants us to join him in the work of reconciling this wicked world back to its creator, God has enrolled each of us in the daring mission to build up his kingdom. Once you're planted in a church, once you're growing in Christ, the next step is to find a place where you can get involved and you can use your gifts and regularly serve your Lord. And I've discovered the best way to make friends at church is to get involved serving with other people. Hey, people who rub shoulders serving together get to know each other. They develop a bond, a closeness. It's like soldiers occupying the same foxhole. 
You know, I've discovered nine times out of ten, the people who are always complaining and grumbling are the people who aren't serving in any way. For once you take the plunge, once you get involved, once you develop some trust, you see that other people really are trying. You drop your complaints at the door and you seek to be a solution, not a problem. Once upon a time, Margaret and Ruth were elderly residents of a nursing home in Inglewood, New Jersey. Margaret is an African-American woman. Ruth is Jewish. Both were accomplished pianists before suffering severe strokes. Margaret barely survived her stroke. She spent months in rehab to recover the use of her left side. Her right side stayed paralyzed. After Ruth's stroke, she laid on the floor for two days before anyone found her. Ruth still had use of her right side, but she was confined to a wheelchair. But it didn't take long in their nursing home for Ruth and Margaret to discover each other and to realize their common love for the piano. Soon they were playing together at senior centers and at civic groups and for veterans' hospitals. They would sit side by side on the piano bench, Margaret playing with her left hand while Ruth playing with her right hand, and together they made beautiful music together. Margaret spoke for them both when she commented, I never thought God could use us the way he is doing. We are so happy and we thank him every day. I'm not sure any of us can really accomplish much for God on our own. We're all spiritual invalids. Spiritually speaking, we've been stroked out. We've been disabled by sin. But here's the deal. I can take the little I got left, and you can take the little you got left, and we can combine it with what he's got left and what she's got left. And all of us working together might just be able to make some beautiful music. As one, we can bear more fruit than the sum of what each of us could bear on our own. Well, there's barbecue outside, so let me start wrapping things up. <laughs> I want to share with you a parable. It's lengthy, but it's worth it. Stick with me. It's entitled, The Life-Saving Station. On a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur, there was a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea, and with no thought for themselves, went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with the station and give of their time and money and effort for the support of the work. New boats were bought and new crews trained. This little life-saving station grew. Other members were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and they put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members. They decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely. They now used it as sort of a club. 
Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in this club's decoration, and there was a symbolic lifeboat in the room where the club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick. The beautiful new club was in chaos. And so the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where victims of the shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save lives of all these various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. They did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs all along the shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but today, most of the people just drown. God help us to remember that we are not some Christian club, but that Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain is still a life-saving station. Let's not lose our vision. God wants our roots planted and our shoots growing, not so that we can turn inward and only relate to each other, but so that we can bear fruit and impact a lost world. When our church had grown to 100 people or so, and we were established for a number of years, one of our members approached me one Sunday and he said, Pastor Sandy, I bet it really feels good for you that we're no longer a mission, that we've now become an established church. I was quick to correct him, almost rude. I said, hey, I don't care how long we survive or if we thrive, I want us to always have a mission mindset. William Booth once said, some may be content to stay near church in Chapel Bell, but I want to run a mission a yard from the gates of hell. Me too. Our church exists not just to take up space. We exist to be a life-saving station. Let's pray for our community. Let's reach out. Let's be on the lookout for those who are lost. People are shipwrecked and drowning in these waters right off our coast on our watch. It's up to us to row out and to pluck as many from the surf as we can. Perhaps you've seen the movie Apollo 13. If you haven't seen the movie, you probably are familiar with the story. But on the way to the moon, the Apollo spacecraft was crippled by an explosion. The prospects for the astronaut's safe return looked grim. Early in the movie, Gene Krantz, NASA's flight operations chief in Houston, he was confronted with the slim odds of bringing the capsule and its occupants home. 
Rather than capitulate to the circumstances, Krantz showed his determination. He barked out, We have never lost an American in space and we're not going to lose our first on my watch. Failure is not an option. He went on to write his autobiography and he entitled it, Failure is Not an Option. Well, this is how I feel about our our post in our community. Let's not be content with a single soul dying and going to hell on our watch. We need to bear fruit. Bearing fruit is our purpose. It takes patience and perseverance, and it's very, very practical. But oh, when eternity's first day is done, we will look back and we will see that it was all so, so worth it. Let's be positioned properly and progressing continually and productive annually. It's all about roots and shoots and fruits.